It's the turn for Lord's Day 4 this afternoon, but I've been given a bit of space so that I can do that which I would like to do and bring to you the Word of God as we find that in Acts 2, verse 39. Acts 2, verse 39. Famous words, delightful words. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. After the proclamation of God's word, we'll praise God with the words of Psalm 128. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it's no secret that Christianity is quite divided over uh, the question of infant baptism. To me, as a leader in the church out east, it's distressing to notice when families leave us and depart to churches that are of more of a Baptist persuasion because they're convinced that that's the right approach and that the New Testament says nothing about this matter. In many cases, it's not a matter of them being convinced, but in many cases, it's a matter of going there because socially or whatever else, they like it better. And then they figure baptism question is not really a big deal. Well, I don't really agree with that. Christianity is divided over this question, whether we should be baptizing those who have not yet professed their faith. Many feel there's no biblical justification for doing so. They believe the New Testament is actually quite silent about the whole matter. And I would beg to differ. I most adamantly believe that when you line up the data, then you see that children are included. That has always been God's way, and there's nothing in the Old Testament that suggests it's no longer God's way. I mean, think of Jesus in the Gospels where he gathers the children and blesses the children and says, to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. He's in one line with the Old Testament. He's in one line with Psalm 78 and so many other passages, Psalm 128. Or I think of Paul's words to the people of Corinth in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 14. He's talking about a divided family, a family that's having trouble. And he talks about the children, and he says the children are holy. It doesn't mean the children are converted. Holy means what holy has always meant in the Old Covenant. It means separated and dedicated to God. God has his eye upon them. Or think of Ephesians chapter 6. The letter to Ephesus is a letter that's written to God's people in the city of Ephesus. And chapter 6 is not some kind of appendix to this letter. It's still an essential part of the letter when Paul addresses some of the members of the church in Ephesus, namely the children, and says, Obey your parents. For this is the promise. He, he actually takes an old covenant promise of the fifth commandment and he applies it to new covenant children. He says, it's good for you to obey and honor your parents because that will mean a long life and many blessings for you. Paul includes the children because he sees them as included among the covenant, of pe covenant people. And so to Acts 2, verse 39, people sometimes complain there's no New Testament data. Well, what about this data? Acts 2, verse 39, 
The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The truth of God's word comes to you this afternoon under this theme. The promise is to you and to your children. We'll talk about the nature of this promise. We'll talk about the recipients of this promise. So the nature and the recipients of the promise. Brothers and sisters, what is it that is happening in Acts 2 when Peter pronounces these words? Well, it's the day of Pentecost. The promised spirit has been poured out, and Peter, in a lengthy homily, is attempting to explain this event. I still remember about 40-some-odd years ago, the first time I ever preached on Pentecost, on this Pentecost event, I was struck by how little Peter actually says in that homily, in that sermon, about the Holy Spirit. And I thought he kind of missed his point. He's always talking about Jesus. His message from beginning to end is that Jesus Christ is the one who has poured out this Holy Spirit who has come with visible signs of wind and tongues of fire. Later, I realized that was exactly the point. The Jesus, who in the Gospels is the great bearer of the Spirit and does all the wonderful things he does because he's the bearer of the Spirit. We think he does them because he's divine, but the Gospels would say, no, he does them because he is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now Jesus at the Pentecost becomes the great dispenser of the Spirit who universalizes his own presence among the people of God around the world and throughout the ages by way of his Holy Spirit. Peter's point is made in 2 verse 33. Jesus has been exalted to the heavens and he has received the Holy Spirit and has poured out that which you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Jesus is the main person of the Pentecost event. That's why the the book of Acts is not really the Acts of the Apostles. It's the Acts of our Lord Jesus Christ through the apostles. It's the second act of the Lord Jesus Christ through the apostles. Peter is saying, in light of that event and all the gospel events, that Old Testament Judaism, Old Testament religion, has found a new center and a new focus in Jesus of Nazareth, and they need to approach Yahweh and see Yahweh now through Jesus. But the other message the message that would upset this largely Jewish audience was about the tragic mistake the Jewish people had made. They thought that for the sake of the future of Israel, they had to crucify this Jesus of Nazareth and do away with him. But Peter's message is this. This Jesus, whom you crucified, was the Son of God. For centuries you looked for the Messiah. For centuries you waited for him. You anticipated the coming of the Messiah. And the Messiah has come. Jesus, the Christ, means Jesus, the Messiah. The Messiah has come. And what did you do? You crucified him. You crucified your own Messiah. The point is, Jesus was the son of the God of Israel God had made him both Lord and Messiah and exalted him to God's own right hand. That's the person you crucified. It was a stunning message. But it produced a good result. Because notice what happened according to verse 37. Luke says the audience was cut 
cut to the heart. That means they were convicted of sin and they were conscious stricken. And so they ask anxiously, what do we do now? Peter's reply is that they must repent, completely changing their mind about Jesus and their attitude towards him, humbling themselves because of sin, and they must be baptized in the name of this Jesus whom they were crucified. They have to humble themselves to the humiliation of baptism. And it was humiliating. Baptism was something that the Jewish leaders would do to Gentile converts to Judaism. Whenever the Gentiles would come into the covenant people, they would be baptized. But they're told, if you would be part of this, the new thing that Jesus is doing, you must be baptized. That would serve as a clear public token of your repentance and of your faith in the Lord Jesus. And if they would do that, says Peter, they would receive two free gifts from God, the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a great message of grace. They would be forgiven even for their sin of crucifying the Son of God. And they would be given the Spirit who would regenerate them, dwell in them, and transform them. It's a great message of inclusion as well. They should not imagine that the gift of the Spirit is only for the apostles or only for the 120 persons who had waited 10 days for the Spirit to come or for any elitist group or for any specific nation. God places no such limitation on His offer or gift. Nations will be called, even those with heinous sins and no merit at all would be included. The promise is extended to all those who now regret the sin of crucifying the Son of God. And notice the promise is not only to them, the promise is to their children. Literally, he says, for you and your offspring. The promise is for you and your offspring. And think about that. Was that not always the way it was in the Old Testament era? When Abraham is told in Genesis about God's covenant, then he's told that not only he and Sarah and other adults of his household are in that covenant, but also their children. They are told very expressly to circumcise all the male children and not just the children who are born to them, even the children who are included in their their homes, in their families. Augustine referred to that later as proof of the fact that Adopted children should be circumcised. Adopted children should be baptized. Because Abraham had to circumcise even those who were bought with his money. However they came into his family, it doesn't matter. They had to be circumcised. They need to be baptized. They're told very explicitly to circumcise the male covenant, male children. This is my covenant which you should keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Think of the Psalms that rejoice over the gift of children. Think of Psalm 78 which we sang together. Think of how it would go for a moment if it wasn't true. Then before this, before Acts 2, all these Jewish people would have regarded their children as part of the covenant and the covenant promises. But if the promise on the day of Pentecost is not for their children, 
this would be a dramatic day of change for them. Suddenly, their children would be excluded. The children would not be welcome, and church would be an adults-only kind of club. One author puts it this way, he says, let us read our New Testaments with an understanding of the original audience. If we stand in the sandals of the first century Jewish and proselyte followers of Jesus, how would they have reacted to the Baptist claim that believers' little children are excluded from the people of God? Imagine the shock of Crispus, the synagogue leader of Acts 18, who believes on Friday, let's say, his children are in covenant with God and fully part of the people of God. And then after Paul preaches, he finds out that in the fulfillment of all the promises, in the fullness of time, in the messianic kingdom and glory of Israel, now his little children have no part in the people of God. I mean, the argument of Hebrews is that the new covenant is more not less than the Old Covenant, more in every possible way. How would this be more? Do you not think that if such a radical change happened, there would have been someone in the New Testament church who would have asked for some clarification? Just a minute, Paul, Peter. What happened here? Or there would have been someone, an opponent of the apostles, who would have lifted up this objection and thrown it in the face of Peter and Paul. It doesn't happen, obviously, because all remained in the new Israel as it was in the old Israel. In both old and new covenants, children and young people are raised in the fear of the Lord and expected to respond with faith and repentance. When a push comes to shove, it's not so much different whether you're a child or whether you're an adult, whether you're four years old or whether you're 40 years old or whether you're 80 years old, you are called to believe and to repent from your sins again and again. In an infantile way, maybe with infants, but nevertheless you are. Sometimes infantile way with adults, face it. Isaiah 59 and more such passages say very powerfully, much may change when the Spirit is poured out, but this will not change. The blessings will descend also upon the children. Now you might say, as some have said to me, well, that depends on how you understand the word promise. The promise is to you and your children. But even the Baptist authors whom I could consult see no different meaning than we do. One such Baptist author writes, there is only one single promise that according to New Testament writers has been unfolding as the plan of God since it was first announced in the Old Testament. He points out that 40 times when the New Testament wants to summarize the Old Testament message, it just uses the word promise. It's all about what God promises, what God's going to do and what he promises he will do. Another one argues for the unity of the promise in all of Scripture and writes, the promise oath continues unchanged in essence throughout the history of redemption. In the ESV, the word promise occurs twice before this in the book of Acts. 
In Acts 1 verse 4, the Lord Jesus speaks about the promise of the Father, and he refers back to what he said already in the days of John the baptizer, that there would be a day when he would pour out his Spirit, baptizing not just with water, but with the Spirit of God. That's already in John the baptizer, who already says, the one who comes after me, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, he will baptize you not just with water, but he will baptize you with the Spirit of God. That was John's promise, God's promise. When did it happen? It didn't happen on Good Friday. It didn't happen on Pentecost. It didn't happen on Easter. But it happens on Pentecost. Finally, that page of the very first chapter of Luke's Gospel gets fulfilled. In Acts 2, verse 33, Peter talks about Christ receiving from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. So clearly, the promise speaks about all the spiritual and blessed realities that God has always promised to his people. New birth, spiritual life, eternal life, blessings in this life, and blessings forever in the life to come. To whom is all that promised? to those who were there on Pentecost Day and responded with guilt and awe to the message of Peter and to their children, to you and to your children, is the promise. It's the promise of new life. It's the promise of the fullness of new life centered in Jesus. It's the promise of the presence and the power of the Spirit out of which flow justification, sanctification, being a member of the new covenant community, and eventually glorification on the new heaven and the new earth. All that is promised to believers and their children. But of course, don't be mistaken. The promise is not the same as the reality. The mere fact that our children have the promise does not necessarily mean that every child that is baptized experiences the reality of what is promised. Would that it were so. Children like adults need to learn to respond in faith and obedience. Baptism is, as our confession suggests, a sign of that which is signified. What is signified is life and salvation. But faith is the connection between that act of baptism and the reality that is promised and is signified. That means everyone needs to believe. Everyone needs to be born again. Those precious new babies will soon show sinful patterns and attitudes that need to be corrected. They need to be born again. There is no one who gets into eternal life without being born again, said Jesus to the Pharisee, Nicodemus. That's why the second sentence of the form for baptism reads, and I I swear we almost read it over it every time, but it says, we cannot enter the kingdom of God unless we are born again. The world is in the process of restoration. Jesus Christ came not just to save people. He came to save a world. He came to renew and restore a world. Well, what do you think? If we're going to have a new heaven and a new earth, a new world, don't you have to be new people. Well, the only way you're going to be new is in Jesus Christ. It's why the promise is not a guarantee either. Baptism is not an absolute guarantee. When you get a certificate of baptism, it doesn't say this child, this person is guaranteed a place in the kingdom of heaven. It says this person has received 
the promises of God. What is it that brings the reality? It's faith. The children of the covenant community are no different than the adults. Both need to respond to the message of the gospel with faith and repentance. Promises, no doubt, are valuable. We shouldn't overlook them. If I promise you or my family wonderful things, you can expect they will come about if you trust me. You almost have it. You will get it. I promise you. So when God makes promises, that's valuable. Imagine the powerful, loving God of heaven and earth makes promises to you and to me. Life and blessings in life. But realize they only come about through faith. If I make some wonderful promises to you or my family members They need to believe that I'm able and willing to keep those promises. The very things that I promise. So too with God. God's promises are always conditional on faith. If you or your children are to receive the blessings and and life eternal, you and your children need to believe that God can and will bring about the very things He's promised. Faith is trusting God to do what He's promised because we are convinced by His provisions that God is both willing and able to keep His word. The problem is our generation has no idea what a promise is. Without a promise, all you have is a hope. It might happen, it might not. To use an example... I'm told, and you've probably been told, that in the world, some of the world's greatest, some of the world's richest men, they're not the greatest, but they're the richest men, have decided to give away half of their estate, half of their money. And they concluded, well, our lives wouldn't change if we gave away half our money, so they're giving half of their money to charity. To use an example, imagine that Warren Buffett would promise you $5 million as soon as you turn 40. Young people, children, imagine when you turn 40, you'll get $5 million. That would be a nice promise. And if you believe he's a trustworthy gentleman, as I believe he is, you'll be banking on it all the way to 40. But without a promise, you get nothing. What's the likelihood that any of us would see any of the money of these wealthy men of the world? The likelihood is Zero. Well, then, this is your privilege. You get a promise from the God of heaven and earth who is faithful to his word and is able to do the things he promises. The one who made you, the one who remakes you, the one with all the power and all that love says, I promise your life may be tough now. You may go through a life of suffering You, like the whole world, may cower because of an illness, but there's a better day coming. There's a greater future coming. I promise. The whole Christian life really depends on the promises of God. Did you remember? I believe that Pastor Ted remembered the cause of education in the first service today. Well, on what basis are we going to do this whole matter of education if it is not on the basis of the fact that God made promises to these children, your children, who who are educated in these places? Are you going through 
pain and suffering because of the suffering of a child. What a comfort it is to know also the children belong to God. Even children who have not yet professed their faith can say, I belong, body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Have you had, as I know some of you have had, the need to, to, to baptize somebody long before he professed his faith? And our young brother Shooten, what is your comfort? What is your strength when you do that? The fact that God makes promises, promises which extend even to infants who die before they've seen the first light of day. This is our God. There's a great future coming, and God promises it to us and our children. The whole Christian life depends on the promises of God. In the words of the Getty hymn, by faith, by faith this mountain shall be moved, and the power of the gospel shall prevail, for we know in Christ all things are possible for all who call upon his name. We will stand as children of the promise. We will fix our eyes on him, our soul's reward, till the race is finished and the work is done. We'll walk by faith and not by sight. But let us secondly think a little longer about the phrase, you and these children, these recipients of the promise. Given the larger context of Acts 2, it would really make little sense to maintain that children somehow are not included I mean, think of it in chapter 2, verse 17. We read it together. Peter quotes from Joel and speaks about how the sons and daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall dream dreams. Pentecost is going to impact the generations, Peter says. And he says this is fulfilled today on the day of Pentecost. Young people are prophesying. But are we supposed to read further and then read that actually... They're not included in this, really? Besides, Acts 2, verse 39 says it explicitly. People say New Testament doesn't prove it, but isn't this proof? Children, to you and to your children is the promise. And what is baptism? It is a sign and seal of the promise. If you get the promise, why wouldn't you get the sign and seal of the promise? How many times does God have to say something to be true? Is it not enough to say it once? Well, he says it more often, but even if he said it once, who says there's no evidence? The word for children that is used in Acts 2 verse 39 doesn't designate the age of the child. It simply refers to the offspring of parents, to their posterity, whatever their age, whatever their ability they are the offspring of parents who believe. In discussion, some will try to deflect the attention away to what follows, where Paul writes, or Peter says, the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. At times, they speak about this in a way which suggests that this means the promises to everyone, wherever they are, everyone in the world. And in effect, that makes the promise quite useless in general, just another part of the evangelism task. 
So what is meant by these further expressions? Well, think about it. On the day of Pentecost, it's the disciples and the first believers who are gathered in Jerusalem. To them is the promise and to their children. But the question might come up, what about when these apostles go to other places, to other Jews and other Gentiles, and spread the message of salvation? Is the promise valid then too? In some way. Peter would say and does say, yes, and for all who are far off. What does that mean? Did Peter have in mind us in North America who believe 2,000 years later? I doubt it. You have to be mindful of the fact that in Acts 1 verse 8, the Lord Jesus says to his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. How far does that go? Well, by the time we get to the last chapter, Paul is in Rome, and that, in Luke's mind, is pretty much the end of the earth. The gospel will go to the end of the earth, and there's Paul in Rome, and it's reached the end of the earth. So with that phrase, and all who are far off, the Holy Spirit leads Peter to be mindful of what would happen on the early missionary journeys. That's why we read from Acts 16, where Paul and Timothy are. Where is that? It's in Philippi. How far away is Philippi? Well, to get from Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost to Philippi, you have to go north through Lebanon and Syria, and you have to go across Turkey and up to northern Greece. That's about 9,700 kilometers, about 6,000 miles between Jerusalem to Philippi. Would that qualify as a place afar off? I think so. It's close to Rome. If you would travel by bus today at an average speed of 50 kilometers an hour, it would take about 200 hours. On foot, as Paul probably did it, at an average walking speed of 4 miles an hour, it would take about 1,500 hours. 62 days if you did it without ever sleeping. These people in Philippi, we can all agree, are far off. Now, how does it go with the spread of the word in Philippi? We read about the Philippian jailer and his conversion. But did you notice that in that passage, even though they all hear the word, the only one who is said to believe is the jailer. But then verse 33 reads, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. There is one person who believes multiple people get baptized. He believes he's baptized, he and all his family. And verse 34 reads, And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. The NIV has actually been misleading us when it translated this verse and said, he and his entire household rejoiced because they all believe in God. The Greek doesn't say that. The Greek says he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And so to the story of Lydia, we didn't read it, but notice what it says in Acts 16, verse 14 and 15 about her. Verse 14 speaks about the Lord opening her heart. And as a result, in verse 15, she and her household are baptized. 
These members of the household, her household, were baptized by virtue of her profession of faith and baptism. It's not so strange. In the Gospels, things often happen to people because of the faith of somebody else. The man who is let down through the roof is healed because of the faith of those who allowed him to come down through the roof. The centurion's son is healed, not because of his faith, but because of the centurion's faith. It happens regularly. One receives the blessings of another one's faith. So to hear the blessing of being born to believing children is you get the promises along with them. Young people, children, those are your promises, the promises that God gives to his children. The point that at 2 verse 39 is making is that this is the pattern. This is how it goes in the New Testament age. The promise is not only to believers and the children of believers on the day of Pentecost, so it will go to, as the gospel goes out to Jew and Gentile, and the missionaries go out to the end of the earth, according to Acts. Whenever the gospel goes to those places and a man or woman embraces the gospel, the promise is not only to them, but also to their children. Why? Because those people are transformed by the gospel. These parents are transformed with the gospel. They will want to speak with their children about the gospel. They will want to teach their children in God's ways. And God then promises them, do that as leader in your house. Believe in me and I and all that I have will be yours. It goes as it goes somewhere in the book of Genesis where God says about Abraham, I make a covenant with him because I know Abraham. He will instruct his children in these ways. That has always been God's way. That has always been the way of the people of civilization for thousands of years. It's only now that we get into this individualistic age where everybody's busy with their individualistic world and we have all these, these technologies so that we, we can shut everybody out and we can just create our own little bubble and create in our own little world. It's about me and my world and I this and I that. But that's not how it's been for thousands of years. You are embraced in the midst of your community. You are part of your community. In the first century world, they were so very corporately aware. A man and a woman and a child are connected together to their community, to their country. The gospel comes to nations. All who are afar off. It applies to Asia Minor, to Rome, to Philippi, even today to Canada and the rest of the world. It's the rule. God embraces a person totally, not only him or her, but also that which is or who, he or she who is his and hers. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. It reiterates the message. The point is when the gospel goes out, it's a real offer from a God who really means it. Believe and you will be saved. You and your household will be baptized. When the gospel goes out, it's a real offer. We should not argue that it's only a real offer for the elect or for those who believe. It's a genuine offer. 
You can spread the word among your neighbors and say, believe in the Lord God, see his son, and God makes his promises to you and to your children. They are real promises, as real as God is. The point is, if you argue, as too many have argued in our circles, that the scriptures do not support infant baptism, the truth is, as hard as it is, you don't really know the scriptures adequately. And you don't see all the lines that are there in the scripture. And then you shortchange your own children and you shortchange even your grandchildren. You stop them from seeing God's promises to them and from seeing that those promises are signed and sealed in their baptism and from living out those promises. God, you promise, even as I go through this valley as a young person or as an old person, you, you say, God, you promised. God does not lie. Believe in him. Of course, the point is well made. Churches that practice infant baptism still need to emphasize faith and conversion. Absolutely. Children are not included simply because they are part of the social ethnic club which they go along with. No, they're included because of the greatness of God and the greatness of how he works. And they embrace that when they embrace God in faith and know of conversion. It's often said, God does not have grandchildren. And that's true. You do not automatically receive salvation because your parents and parents have it. You know how it goes with grandchildren? You beget children. And then it seems like if I speak of my own experience, my wife's experience, it's almost like automatically there come the grandchildren. You didn't do anything for the grandchildren, but they're there. And Well, God doesn't have grandchildren. The point is, you do not automatically receive salvation because your parents and their parents have. You don't get this naturally because every successive generation has to embrace this God in faith and embrace the truth of the gospel. The Bible needs to be an open book in every family where baptism happens because in every family, those children need to be hearing the stories and the promises and the glory of who God is. They need to be directed, not just with their minds, but with their hearts. Promises have to do with things that you embrace with your heart. This is true. I have embraced this. The big question as you, as you direct your children needs to be, do they know this? Do they know that? The big question is, where is their heart? Remember, you are not what you think. It's not, I think, therefore I am. No, you are what you love. What do your children love? What do you love? Do you show to them that you love God? Do they show in their lives that they love God? God doesn't have grandchildren, but you could say God does have promissory grandchildren. He does make a promise which can be wonderfully extended from generation to generation when every successive generation stands, embraces him. I stand 100% behind all the evangelism and missional activities of the church today. I've believed for a long time that we have a great calling in this great nation of ours, this nation that for a while we call home. This is as it ought to be. The church does not exist for itself. But while that is true, do not think that that means that we should overlook 
the tremendous significant work that happens in our homes, in our churches, in our schools, in our organizations. Said one man, I do not hesitate to claim that far and away the largest part of the Christian church at any time or any place are those who were born and raised in Christian families. The harvest God receives in the church through the generations, he was saying, far exceeds that which the harvest reached from, far exceeds that harvest which is reached from outside. It means we should not overlook the great significance of the small and ordinary things we do in life. Reading the children's Bible, speaking with our children, a father's admonition, an elder's voice, a brother's rebuke, a, a grandfather's reminder, the teacher's correction, the pastor's catechesis, these and more are all tremendously significant. Precisely because faith is important, the church and the family also nurture that faith and pray for God's blessing over all such nurture. It also means you have to have an eye for the greatness of the love of the Father to you and to your children, and you need to communicate that to them. In the words of another hymn, Oh, we are the people of God, with the freedom of hope in our hearts. How great is the love of the Father. This is the song of the redeemed, the ransomed and free, given life at such a price. This, this is love. Build then on these promises, on the glorious nature of who God is and all his love in Christ. Amen.